if we went by the principle that those affected by a problem should be in charge of determining the solution, then the majority of the world's peace negotiators, foreign ministers, and diplomats would be women. Gender. It influences our identity, the role we play in our society, and the way that we interact with each other. The crucial role of women in preventing conflict and building peace has been recognized. Yet over the last 30 years, 70% of peace processes did not include any women mediators or women signatories. So peace, much like war, remains entirely dominated by men. Welcome to Season 6 of the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by CSPPS, You Know Why Peace Builders, and GPAC. The Youth Threaten podcast, the Peace Corner aims to demystify peace building by giving peace builders across the world the opportunity to share their stories. We showcase the ordinary and extraordinary nature of peace building with the belief that everyone can be a peace builder. We just need to make space. This season explores gender dynamics in peace building. So who are the people making peace buildings more equal, inclusive and relevant? How are these pioneers making gender equality the norm? Keep listening to find out. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Peace Cornet podcast. My name is Inora. I do pronounce she, her. I am Mexican uh, and currently I am the communications officer at the United Network of Young Peace Builders. I am also very excited today because we have the guest speakers from Mexico, <laughs> Ana and Daniela. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. And uh, please introduce yourself. Hi, Dinora. Thank you so much for, for having us. My pronouns are also she, her. My name is Daniela Philipson. And I am a next generation gender peace and security scholar. And I also have experience working for the Mexican Senate. I was a policy advisor to the Speaker of the Senate of Mexico. And I also worked as a policy analyst for the New York City government. And I was a Women, Peace and Security Fellow at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was uh, really interesting because I actually got to go in person to the UN Security Council debates and get to analyze Women, Peace and Security agenda, which is what we're going to be discussing today. We're super happy. I am personally very happy of being here and also because I'm speaking to fellow Mexicans on a very important topic for our country these days. Um, my name is Ana Velasco. My pronouns are she, her, ella, la, corresponding in Spanish. I am a feminist security researcher and consultant. And well, I have worked in government, media, civil society, and I have specialized in the Women, Peace and Security agenda, trying to emphasize a Global South perspective. I have published, well, I'm a co-author of um, the report, Increasing Security, Women's Participation in Security Forces in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, published in January 2021 under the auspices of the US uh, Department of Defense. And I am currently a fellow of the American NGO, Women in International Security, and I am a visiting researcher at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. So before jumping to our topic today, uh, we always like to ask our guests uh, 
some uh, more than their professional background. Please uh, let us know about how did you become involved in gender and peace building slash conflict transformation? And can you share one of the best moments of your career so far? First, Daniela and then Anna. I think I got involved with gender and peace building conflict transformation a little bit uh, by accident and also with a bit of a piecemeal approach. So I first began as a feminist activist when I was a student in university. And then I started getting very interested in security when I was working in the Mexican Senate. That was the, the main issue that I was working towards, but it took me a really long time to actually put the two together and to figure out how those two intersected. Uh, so it wasn't until I was actually working for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in New York that I was exposed to that feminist perspective of security. And that was a that was a huge transformation and a major pivot point in my career, I think. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think one of the best moments of my career was having that opportunity to go into the United Nations headquarters in New York to be able to listen to the Security Council debates and to be able to analyze the women, peace and security agenda and to learn so much from um, all the activists in the ground at the United Nations. And I also got to go to the UN high level political forum and to the General Assembly. And I got to mix and meet all, all the feminist activists who are who are there doing the work. And that was, that was a fantastic moment for me. I think uh, we should try as feminists to sort of also present ourselves from a more personal perspective in every forum where we can, not just as we are not only made out of our our personal careers, professional careers, right? So the personal is very important. And thank you for that question. So I think I I share with with Daniela and that's probably, and I didn't know that about her actually, (laughs) that it also took her some time to put together the two perspectives of security and feminism or gender. Uh, So in my case, I started the other way around. I was interested in security and conflict because while I was studying in the university is when the war on drugs was launched. So my view of security was pretty mainstream, very realist, uh, nationalist, I would even say, and very militaristic. And then at that point, I thought if I want to be taken seriously in this career um, by the important people there, which were mostly men, well, I cannot think of feminism here, right? Because it is not important. The hard questions are not answered by feminism. And then I will leave it there for the audience to think of all the gender power underpinnings of, <laughs> of that phrase. But it was then a professor who was uh, mentoring me at that moment that suggested trying to look deeper into the intersection of gender studies and security. I listened and here I am. And so about the best moments, I think it has been precisely the partnerships, this approach to work that focuses more on collaboration, on community building, rather than on individualistic uh, goals. And I think in my, at least in my path, every publication, every seminar discussion that I have engaged with this approach has been a a best moment, right? I think feminism has changed the way I measure success And most importantly, it keeps me focused on knowing that the goal is always larger than your personal professional path. So moving forward, 
Daniela, based on your experience and knowledge, how does it actually look like on the ground to integrate gender transformation and intersectionality into peace building and conflict transformation? I think there's a proclivity to jump into assuming that uh, a gender perspective involves only increasing the representation of women in peace building. And it, it, it only involves increasing participation of women. And of course, participation is one of the central pillars of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And of course, participation is incredibly important. We know that women have been underrepresented in peace negotiations uh, historically. We also know that it, when women do participate in peace negotiations, that, uh, that helps secure more long-term sustainable peace agreements. Actually, I was reading also a study from the University of Sydney, and it's looking at the National Action Plan on Gender, Peace and Security over the last 20 years. And it finds that indeed participation tends to be the pillar that National Action Plans focus more on. And that is also certainly true for the National Action Plan for Mexico that just came out in January last year. Again, as, although participation really is important, I think it is important. I think we also need to pause and really think what happens when we only focus on participation and when we only focus on representing women, because it's important to think of what women, women are not monolithic, of course. Uh, there are many intersections and there are many, women are, are very different. So it's also important to think like what, what women are being represented, what women are participating. But more than that, for me, feminism is also, and feminism on the ground means thinking about power structures and how to challenge those power structures and challenge the systems that have for decades been taken for granted, right? So for me, feminism, feminism in the ground is every day finding ways to challenge capitalism, to challenge racism, to challenge sexism, to challenge uh, colonialism, all these systems that are so embedded in our everyday in our everyday, and uh, there, I think everyone in their everyday has opportunities to to identify those systems and to challenge them, challenge them in their in their own way. And that's also why I really think that it's important when talking about the Women, Peace, and Security agenda, when talking about national action plans on WPS. I think it's important to not only think from the top down approach, not only think of all these international agreements and how they can be applied to the local level, but the reverse as well, right? So what are people doing on the ground? What are the local best practices and how can those be incorporated into international agreements? I think for me, when I try to think of peace building at the local level and, and gender and intersectionality, what comes to mind is communities of neighbors. I also do a lot of work with police departments. And what I've heard from police departments is that community intelligence is crucial. And when you have very close-knit communities and when you have very close-knit networks of neighbors, they're usually the ones that are going to be able to solve a crime, right? And they're the ones that are going to be able to aid the police in solving a crime. And police know this. And this is something that, this is why it's so important also that police have good relationships with the, with the communities that they are serving, uh, because otherwise they, they won't be able to necessarily solve the crimes that they're looking to solve. So I definitely think of, um, of communities, of close-knit communities. And I also think of 
women supporting each other, right? So there's also this study that recently came out by Data Civica, uh, NGO in Mexico, that talks about how gender-based violence can be, and gender-based violence in Mexico and domestic violence specifically in Mexico is often solved by, by neighbors. So it's the groups of vecinas um, that are the ones that are most aware of what is happening inside a household. Are, are they are the ones that are there to, to help whoever's in a, in a distressed situation, right? So definitely I, I think of, of networks of women, I think of communities, and I think of bottom-down approaches. Those are, those are the things that come most to mind. So Anna, based on what Daniela just said, then the Women, Peace and Security agenda can be localized and applied to countries like Mexico, where there is no declared armed conflict. Can you please deepen on that? Um, well, first to say, I agree with everything that Daniela just said. <laughs> But, and I think what she explained is crucial to understand how the WPS agenda speaks to these local insecurities of women. So I'm going to have to get uh, just recap a little bit on the history of the WPS agenda to answer the question. Because although Resolution 1325 um, was adopted in 2000, until 2000, the path that led to it started way before. Women's organizations have been pushing for a feminist perspective to conflict resolution since at least uh, the First World War, right? So at the core of this decades-long activism were the ideas that security should be thought from the standpoint of individuals, not states, or not only states. And second, that conflict and the violence it produces was not necessarily unavoidable, right? And that, that going to war is not necessarily, and in many, many cases, is not the solution, right? Or the only solution you have in front of you. So when the resolution was implemented, because of the institution, say the UN, that was hosting the debate that would transform it into a proper instrument, an international instrument, it had to be adapted, right, to the particular needs of the institution and in turn the particular needs of the states that were actually going to approve it. So that is specifically, uh, or the first, let's say, the first level of that implementation would be UN peace building, the whole structure of UN peace building. And that's why the resolutions of WPS are mainly focused on how to do, uh, how to implement it with uh, peacekeeping missions, right? But, but 1325, as I, just said, as I just said, was basically putting two topics on the table. First, the differentiated impact of conflict on women and their potential to contribute to peace. And both resonating strongly with that history of activism that I just mentioned. So thinking that a declared conflict is needed to say, to use the pillars of the resolution, breaks, completely breaks apart with one of the two core values, which is considering the state as the center of the definition of conflict. And this is something that feminist security literature has critically engaged with uh, many times. For instance, the idea that, that war and peace are two perfect, distinguishable spheres, and they have also presented Uh, to us the concept of the continuum of violence, right? So if we truly center 
the question of security on women, then of course that a country with levels of violence, uh, just as in the case of Mexico, could not possibly, at least in my opinion, be considered as truly peaceful, right? What we're actually questioning here is not, do we fit into that concept? I think the important question is, how is that concept useful for us? And whose views is it reflecting? Because even if we know that there are thousands of women looking for their loved ones, that 10 women are murdered in Mexico every day, that journalists are being murdered at, at alarming rates, um, that there is increasing militarization, because then the answer is, since Mexico is not at war with Guatemala or with a local insurgency with political aims, then WPS does not apply. That is basically the, the, the answer that we're giving. And that is effectively erasing the experiences of the victims. So in my opinion, that's completely out of the question. And this, I think this reflection of, of locating peace in the bodies of women applies to Mexico and applies to other countries that one might not think they, they consider themselves as in conflict. For instance, you can ask to indigenous women in Canada, and I come back to this example very often, if they are actually, if they feel safe. And one would say, obviously, Canada doesn't have a conflict. I would question that. So, Daniela, considering what Anna said about the applicability of the YPS agenda in Mexico, and that you mentioned that last year Mexico adopted a national action plan on YPS, what is the significance of that? Should we as feminists follow up on that? Yes, of course. So the national action plan of women, peace and security in Mexico came out in January 2021 at the same time that Mexico joined the Security Council as a non-permanent member. And at this time, Mexico also joined as part of, as a co-chair of the informal group on women, peace and security along with Ireland. So it was, I think there was a lot of pressure on Mexico to uh, publish a national action plan in this specific context. Uh, and so it did, it, it put out, it published a national action plan and the national action plan, it's quite superficial. It does, as I mentioned before, it is not unlike many other national action plans in that its main focus is participation. And it really talks a lot about participation of women in peacekeeping operations. Mexico only recently started participating in peacekeeping operations. So what I'm trying to say is that peacekeeping operations for Mexico are actually very moderate, right? Its participation in peacekeeping operations is very moderate. So the fact that Mexico is making this its central uh, contribution to the National Action Plan, I think is, it, it says a lot, right? Given that Mexico is experiencing such a security crisis and that its only focus in the National Action Plan is so outward looking in this very niche, this very moderate um, peacekeeping operations, component, right? And it is not looking at many other things that are that are truly important for the Mexican context right now. So for example, it doesn't mention immigration. It doesn't mention militarization. It doesn't mention anything about threat on journalists. We know that Mexico is the most dangerous country for journalists. And this is something that is simply not addressed in the National Action Plan and how this affects Uh, women and other marginalized groups, right? So the, na the National Action Plan, uh, I think it's good that Mexico has one. I think there's a lot of room for improvement, 
another thing is Mexico's feminist foreign policy also says that it will prioritize an intersectional approach. And that is completely lacking in the National Action Plan. There is no intersectionality in the National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. There is one initiative that I found very, very interesting because it precisely tackles this issue that we've been discussing today, which is localizing the National Action Plan and the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And it's called the Network of Women Peace Builders. So it's um, in Spanish, it's Mujeres Constructoras de Paz, Redes de Mujeres Constructoras de Paz. And the abbreviation is MUCPAS. And this is something that the Institute of Women in Mujeres has been working towards. And it's precisely tapping existing networks, because I, I think that's also very interesting. They mentioned that they already acknowledge ex existing networks of women at the municipal and at the local level. And they're tapping them and they're organizing forums with women at the municipal level around the country to find what are their best practices and find out more about how they deal with peace building in their everyday, right? So this is what we were mentioning before. This is a very interesting proposal that is mentioned in the National Action Plan. I think it's very interesting and it's really worth analyzing more. However, uh, the so the, the fund that was being used to fund this net, this network and this initiative was recently eliminated. So there's a, this program is now being completely defunded, which is also, I, I, I think it's very sad that it's being defunded, given that it was such an interesting, um, and I think an initiative with a lot of potential. And I think it's very important that more people engage with the Women, Peace and Security agenda in Mexico, not only because the country is being militarized and has been militarized since 2006 with the escalation on the war on organized crime and the war on drugs. Uh, I think the National Action Plan and the Women, Peace and Security agenda could really help rethink security in Mexico, could really help us rethink militarization, what are its objectives. And really, I mean, feminists have always been saying that militarization doesn't ever achieve more peace, right? If anything, militarization leads to cycles of violence um, and conflict. And this is exactly what we've seen in Mexico, right? So I think the feminist solutions from the Women of Peace and Security agenda, from feminist civil society are, are crucial for Mexico. And I think it's also very important to, for more people to become engaged with the agenda um, in order to give it continuity, right? We, we, want, we want to make sure that this isn't, isn't something that is only promoted by the current administration, but in the future administrations, when there's civil society engagement, when there's engagement from constituents, they want to make sure that the, the agenda lives on and the national action plan continues, that this isn't the first and last national action plan. We want to make sure that there's pressure and that there's accountability and participation from civil society to ensure that the National Action Plan continues and that there's a second and third edition and that each edition is, is better and keeps improving. And, and for that really participation from uh, an engagement, meaningful engagement from civil society is very, very important. Yes, Daniela, I completely agree with you. I also think that the Mexican National Action Plan on YPS, it is also related to this announcement of Mexico of having a feminist foreign policy. 
Anna, will you agree on that? What are the implications to pills building in Mexico? Well, I think it's there's lots to discuss about feminist foreign policies. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the case of Mexico, it was introduced one year before. And it was, say, announced as a new moment in Mexican foreign policy. Um, yet up until this day, there isn't a lot of documentation, official documents that we can, where we can really understand um, what is it that the Mexican government is considering its feminist approach to foreign policy. And yet some of the, of, of the clues that we have about it, and we could elaborate that a bit more uh, later on, is related precisely to the WPS agenda. So what I would like to, I, I mean, I, I think before answering what is that, what is it that Mexican foreign policy, how does it actually look like? I think we can ask ourselves a little bit beforehand, what is it that feminist, feminism can or is trying to add to foreign policy? Because we know Mexico is not the first country in adopting it, right? Although it is the first country from the so-called global south to do it, it is not the first one. And I think this opens some very interesting questions for, for us as, as practitioners. Um, so, and, and this is also speaking to this idea of uh, gender mainstreaming, right? So what, what is it really adding? And I think what feminist foreign policy should do in principle, and that's uh, my take on this, is to repoliticize the agenda because uh, as a matter of guiding principles. Why? Because feminist debates and sometimes feminist um, concepts, conceptualizations, they challenge, they are meant to challenge the status quo, right? But sometimes they are absorbed by the system, say patriarchy or capitalism, and are made into more digestible, comfortable for institutions and governments. And this has happened on a number of occasions, and it might continue happening in the future. And I think we must be aware of it. So when you use the, the, the adjective of, say, it's feminist, the idea is that you are trying to repoliticize it, to ask and to question the deeper structures that are guiding this country's policies. Just as Daniela said, feminism is way more, is way more than just looking into gender. And in the case of foreign policies, uh, we can think of Cynthia Enloe, for instance, when she says that we have to question the concept of the national interest, that we cannot just take it for granted. And this concept right now is very much in vogue because we are in the middle of an invasion with major global implications in Europe. So one can ask who is part of this nation and who is left out. And this is relevant because nation states produce and reproduce gender technologies of violence, right? That target certain racialized and marginalized groups. So in other words, gender mainstreaming assumes that gender is already there, is giving, is existing, and it aims to make it visible for policymaking. That is already very important. But a feminist lens goes deeper and asks how is gender being produced and gender and race, how are gender and race being produced and reproduced by foreign policy? So. What, what feminist uh, foreign policy is doing there is upgrading the stakes for countries to implement it. But of course, feminism is too important to leave it to states to decide for themselves. So declaring that they embrace feminist principles also opens the door for feminist activists 
to demand accountability and a seat at the table. And this for me is possibly one of the most revolutionary aspects of thinking of uh, feminist foreign policy, because it opens a bridge between the local and the global. And this also intersects with the WPS agenda, precisely trying to understand security from uh, the local, right? From the bodies of women to larger global structures. So if not security of women, what should be one of the top priorities of feminist foreign policy, right? The, the, it has to be part of it. But in the case of Mexico, what we are seeing is that there is a incomplete information about what Mexico is truly understanding as feminist foreign policy. Uh, like I just mentioned, we don't really have a guiding document to monitor the implementation. We have some principles that are giving us some clues here and there, but there isn't properly a, say, a, a specific structure of policies that we can look into. But yet, I think it is interesting that they presented it because of precisely what I just explained. It opens a door that in Mexico has been closed for decades, which is how can we build a bridge between the local and the global and the international? And I think that is, uh, we will, we, we, I hope that we can find ways to engage. Okay, that so we don't have a clear that. definition of which feminist approach or theory Mexico is implementing for its feminist foreign policy, nor for the National Action Plan on YPS. However, I think we all agree that we will be aiming for a feminism that is not hegemonic nor Eurocentric. So, Daniela, how would a non-mainstream feminism approach to YPS in Mexico will look like? So I think to go beyond gender mainstreaming, um, again, we have to go beyond this idea that by adding women and steering, that then you suddenly, the outcome is going to be um, a feminist security agenda or it's going to be feminist foreign policy. I think it's very important to, to debunk that idea and to just what Anna said, right? Uh, go a little bit deeper and think about really what is it that foreign policy, how is it that foreign policy is producing gender stereotypes and gender norms? How is it reinforcing this idea that women are in need of male protection and that males, men are, are protectors are, and thus have to serve this role of being um, in the military, being in the police? All these, all these professions, all these stereotypes, what we that we think of when we think of security and when we think of masculinity, I think it's very important to tear that down and start thinking uh, into the different implications and also what happens when we dare to reimagine security? What happens when we dare to reimagine peace and, and safety? What does that mean for, uh, like Anna said also, for a woman in, in Canada, as for a trans woman in, in Brazil, or for a lesbian woman in Mexico, right? What does that look like? How, like, really, I don't think this idea of security, of militarization, uh, of having a male protector, that doesn't benefit anyone. That doesn't address any of the solutions. Uh, that doesn't really make anyone feel safer, right? Um, so I think it's going, it's going deeper and it's also addressing issues that have been historically and traditionally disassociated from this 
um, stereotype of militarization of masculinity, right? Which is, for example, climate justice. When I think of an intersectional and a feminist agenda, and when I think of peace now and in the future, we have to talk about climate justice. We have to address climate justice because it is the biggest threat to humanity right now. Um, and it's only going to get worse and worse, right? So I think we we have to, we, we're also in the middle of a pandemic and we're perhaps, the pandemic is ending in some countries, but not all. It's also just getting worse and worse in some other countries. So we have to think outside again of militarized security to think about public health to 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 really make sure that the people are actually safe and to address these threats that are more real, right? Uh, so I think it's also important to question colonialism and how that has set, um, how that has been so embedded in our culture and is something that we, that we see, for example, to a certain extent in the WPS agenda, and we see in the national action plans when developed countries and when global North countries issue national action plans that are only outward looking and are always othering the subjects and are, other, are always othering um, women in developing countries or in the global South. And they, I think it's really interesting how these more developed countries, instead of being introspective and also thinking about their role and openly talking and debunking colonialism or accepting their role, recognizing their role in upholding these very racist systems that we live in now, they very subtly reinforce them in some way or another. Um, so I think it's important to talk about that. I think it's important to address that. And it's important to think, again, outside of a militarized concept of security uh, a militarized concept of peace and start thinking of those other intersections, right? Uh, and for me, climate justice and public health, uh, because of what we're living through now, are, are two very important components that need to be incorporated into a, a feminist perspective, a feminist concept of peace and security. Anna, so doing recap, both you and Daniela talk about the role of civil society and non-state actors in peace building. So from your point of view, what can feminist peace builders can do to to challenge the unbalanced gender power relations present in security and peace building policies such as national action plans and foreign policies? I think that more than asking yourselves what can you add to the agenda, I think you should own it because at the end of the day, it's yours. It's more, it's more yours, I'm talking activist, it's more ours than it is uh, owned by the governments actually. And why is that? Well, because, well, first of all, because like I said, I don't wanna get again into the history, but yes, it is related to the history of the WPS. It was, it was pushed and it was pretty much, um, it's the result of decades of activism then again. So even if it was a sponsor or if it was hosted, it is hosted by a governmental and international institution that uh, places states as, its, as, as, as the main actors. It was basically the work of civil society. And why is it relevant to include um, civil society? Because you know the experiences, because you work directly 
on the ground, right? You have the grassroots structures and you represent different uh, and at times contrasting experiences. And that only makes it makes your input uh, even richer, right? And, and I think when that truly happens is, is when we consider activists and organizations like yours from all dimensions, geographically in particular, because sometimes we tend to focus on NGOs that might be in major cities or that are larger or that they have more resources. But in Mexico, as it is the case in many other countries, um, those activists that are actually facing threats that have um, the bigger challenges, the ones that might be, you know, they're probably being murdered or targeted are in the periphery. And that is where the whole idea of building peace should start. And, and, and something important to acknowledge is that this is already happening. I mean, it's not something the government needs to invent. In Mexico, and I'm gonna go for that example, there are hundreds of organizations doing incredibly relevant work. Just as Daniela mentioned before, this network of peace builders that uh, the In Mujeres is trying to build or was trying to build, um, is already doing that work, right? There are other organizations, for instance, uh, working with former sicarios, just to put an example, to reintegrate them to society. Uh, but yet, they might not necessarily see themselves as peace, as peace builders. For instance, you do, you have even in your name, but this, there are other organizations that might not recognize themselves as peace builders. And why is that? As I said, it comes back to the issue of the concepts. So if they don't recognize that there are other organizations working towards, towards the same objective, it would be harder for them to build alliances and then appropriate precisely the agenda, the discourse of WPS, and even more difficult to think that perhaps the feminist foreign policy has something to do with them. And I think that is a pending task to build those alliances, to recognize each other and to think, well, perhaps what we are talking about is a different type of peace or is peace at our own terms, in our own terms, right? And so I hope that's answering the question. And it's also related to what Daniela mentioned before. The, and we are worried about that, that perhaps we cannot take for granted that the agenda will survive in the hands of government. We should never uh, grant them that uh, responsibility because we really don't know. Bureaucracies might be able to hold it or but we're not, we are not really sure if it's going to be a priority. So that's why it's also very important for organizations like yours to appropriate WPS. Yes, Anna, I agree. Let's appropriate the YPS agenda and peace building. Uh, Anna and Daniela, I cannot thank you enough for being here and for sharing uh, all those remarks with us. To conclude, please uh, share with us uh, uh, your social media or our other channel where we can connect with you and follow all your work. Yes, of course, my Twitter is uh, at Danny Philipson. And yes, I'm happy happy to connect with you. That's that's really the only social media I use. Yeah, for me, Twitter also is, um, that's say my professional part of social media. I am very comfy with LinkedIn. So Twitter best underscore Ana Velasco. So at underscore Ana Velasco, and that's where you'll find me and I will be happy to engage 
with anyone willing to have a discussion about this or share resources. Thank you for joining us today and for contributing to a better world. Thank you for listening to the Peace Corner podcast and supporting our initiative. Feel free to share this episode with people around you who you think might benefit from it. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening from.